Welcome to Stories from Among the Stars. You're listening to A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martin, narrated by Amy Landon. Chapter 16 Curfew 2200 hours to 0600 hours. Due to increased civil unrest, the Sunlit have instituted a curfew in the following provinces Central South, Belltown 1, Belltown 3. Public announcement on Cloudhook and news feeds. Day 251, Year 3 of the 11th Indictment. In light of current circumstances, the Texcalanli Imperium requests the services of a new ambassador from LaSalle Station. Message ends. Diplomatic communique delivered by a courier from Ascension's Red Harvest to the government of LaSalle Station. Aside from sterile cleanliness, five portico surgery bore no resemblance to the white plastic suites Mahit remembered from LaSalle. It consisted of a polished steel table on an adjustable platform, surrounded by a forest of mobile instrumentation arms and complicated restraints. She felt dreamlike, entirely unreal, as she stripped out of her jacket. She left her shirt on, with her LaSalle secrets still bound to her ribs underneath it. Five Portico did not seem to care. She briskly guided Mahit to lie on her belly on the table and secured her head with a cage of padded bars and straps. This was absurd. She was going to let a stranger rip her imago machine out of her in a back room of an apartment complex on another planet. She had said yes, over and over. Yasconder, she thought, one last desperate reaching out. Forgive me. I'm sorry, come back, please. Still silence. Nothing but that nerve damage flicker down her arms to her outermost fingers. Five Portico came at her with a needle, the tip beating with anesthetic. The iris of her artificial eye yawned, a shutter spin of metal expanding outward. The needle's sting in Mahit's upper arm was a sharp afterthought in the face of the white laser heart of that eye. She was dizzy. Five Portico's hands were on her arms. She could feel all of her bones where they pressed against the steel. That laser eye slipped wider. She could feel its heat. Was she going to use the eye to cut? Blank. Slow decay. A winding down wound backward, wound up again, the memory of a closing dark descent, and then he woke to unstartled flesh, a flicker of oxygen drawn easily, slowly through the throat. Relief, first, dizzying, profound relief, breathing, the intense joy of lungs perfused with air where no air had been able to come, he had been on the floor, on the floor and choking. The carpet pile pressed into his cheek, and now his cheek was on something cold. A breath, slower still, drugged slow. Not his cheek. The lungs too small, the body narrow and brittle bright with youth and exhaustion easily mixed. And had he ever been this young? Not for decades. Other body a new small self. He was dead, wasn't he? Dead and an imago in a new body. 
His mouth was making keening, absurd sounds. He couldn't figure out why. It didn't matter. He was breathing. He sank back into blackness. Sunrise on LaSalle Station happens four times in a 24-hour cycle. Sunrise across the backs of his, unlined, square-nailed hands, resting on tempered gray steel, cold. His fingers prickle with adrenaline, like stinging needles. Across from him is Dodge Tarats. From somewhere distant, a voice he doesn't recognize. This Dodge Tarats is absurdly young. He looks more like a person than the mobile cadaver that someone else is remembering him looking like. Gray-faced under the tight speckled gray curls of his hair, saying, We are going to send you to Takes Kalan, Mr. Agavin, if you're willing to go. He says, as he remembered himself saying, as she had said, I want to, I have always, and the rush of bright desire, the naked shameful want for the thing that was not his by right. Was this the first time he felt it? Of course not. It hadn't been the first time for her either. You're wanting to is not why you are being sent, says Daj Tarats, though it might mean the Imperium finds more flesh on your body to feast on and doesn't spit you back out at us for a while. We need influence in Takes Kalan, Mr. Agavan. We need you to get in as far as you can go and be indispensable. He says, I will be, with all the arrogance of his youth. And only then does he ask, why now? Dash Tarats pushes a star chart across the steel table. It is fine and precise, and Yaskander knows these stars. They are the stars of his childhood. At one edge of the chart, there are a series of black spots, marked out coordinates, places where something has happened. Because we may have to ask Takes Kalan to preserve us from something worse than Takes Kalan, he says. And when we ask, we want them to love us, need us, make them love you, Yaskander. What happened at these places? Yaskander asks one uncalloused fingertip resting on those spreading black dots. We are not alone out here, says Daj Tarats. And what else is out here is hungry, and nothing else but hungry. They have only been quiescent thus far, but that might change at any moment. When it does, I want you to be ready to ask Takes Kalan to intervene. At least a human empire only eats a person from the hard outward. Yaskander shudders, angry and afraid at once, pushes back the anger, the insult, the feeling of what you love makes you despicable, in favor of asking a useful question. We've met aliens before. Why is this different? Dash Tarats's face is serene and composed and utterly cold. Yaskander will dream of it in bad moments, knows he will, remembering forward, will dream of him saying this. They do not think, Yaskander. They are not persons. We don't understand them, and they don't understand us. There is no reasoning or negotiation to be had. Dream it, and wake the kind of cold no heavy blanket or warm-fleshed bedmate can dispel, and think to himself, 
Why didn't Tarats tell the council? Why was I his weapon of choice? What does he want for LaSalle Station to become, to risk this danger for some unknown stretch? Twenty years, someone murmurs, of time. He'd known, even then, that Tarats wanted something larger than the military protection of Takes Kalan. But then he'd been on the city, at court, and it hadn't mattered. I am remembering this for the second time. I am remembering this for the second time. I am remembering what I have never seen. I've seen this. I am this. Who are you? An inward turn, searching, to find that foreign voice, to look at her inside themselves. A turning in. And in turning, they see one another, doubled. I'm Yaskandra Gavin, says Yaskandra Gavin. Yaskandra Gavin is 26 years old and has been in Texcalanli territory for just over 32 months. Yaskandra Gavin is dead. Dead, I saw you dead on a plinth in a basement. I'm dead because you're dead. Forty, almost forty-one, and knows the minor inevitable physical tragedy of middle age, the sag around the middle, and the jawline. I'm Yaskandra Gavin, says Yaskandra Gavin, and you are an imigo I sent back to LaSalle fifteen years ago. Who the fuck was stupid enough to put an imigo of me into me? That would be me. Again, that turning inward, turning sideways and seeing high-cheekboned woman, short-cropped hair, tall and narrow with a sharp prow of a nose and gray-green eyes, bloodshot, exhausted. I'm Mahit Desmar, says Mahit Desmar, and I am both of you now. Blood and starlight, says Yaskander, each of him, both of him, exactly the same tone on the takes Kalanli curse. Why did you do that? Laughing inside one's own mind is uncomfortable, Mahit realizes as she does it. Or maybe what's uncomfortable is trying to fit three minds into one mind, and she, they, are going to break apart right along the fault line where the other two are too much alike and she is not. She is female, a generation younger, four inches too short, and she likes the taste of processed fish flake powder on her breakfast porridge and they are repulsed. Tiny stupid things like that. And she is falling inside her own mind, feeling like an echo, the place where she is being carved open and made into something she's not under alien and impersonal hands. LaSalle Station has a long tradition of psychotherapy, because if it didn't, Everyone on board would have decompensated into identity crisis a long time ago. In the earliest stages of integration with an imigo, during the most difficult part, where the two personalities are sorting out what is valuable about the imigo structure and what should be discarded, what is necessary for the host personality to keep as self-identity, and what can be edited, written over, given up. In those early stages, what a person is supposed to do is consider a choice, a small choice, an unimportant one where the imigo and the host choose the same way. 
to focus on that choice as a still place, a conflictless heart, something to build out from. Mahid, says one of the esconders. She thinks it's the young one, her imigo, the one who is more than half her already. Mahid, remember how you felt when you first read Pseudo-13 River's expansion history and you came to the description of the triple sunrises you can see when you're hanging in LaSalle Station's lag range point, and you thought, at last, there are words for how I feel, and they aren't even in my language. Yes, Mahid says. Yes, she does. That ache, longing, and a violent sort of self-hatred that only made the longing sharper. I felt that way. We felt that way. Both of their voices, almost the same. Electric fire in her nerves. The sweetness of being known. Abruptly and sickeningly, Mahid was aware, in a way she never wanted to have been aware of the movement of air currents, on the internal structure of her cervical vertebrae. A sickeningly intimate caress, that transmuted into a cascade of nerve impulse, fingertips and toe tips lighting up with shimmering pressure that flipped over, the shunt of some massive switch to sudden pain. Why wasn't she unconscious? What was Five Portico doing to her? Mahit tried to scream and could not. Whatever drugs were supposed to be keeping her under the threshold of unconsciousness were paralytic, at least something works, she thought horribly. At least she wasn't going to thrash and tear out her own nervous system on the points of Five Portico's microsurgery rig. Waves of electric feeling, up from her extremities in a helpless rush. There are two of them. They see each other, one is dead and one decohering. Young face a half-remembered sketch, filled in with Mahid's eyes, green instead of brown the wrongness of being in an unfamiliar sensorium, this body's sense of smell more acute, her stress response hormones different, more tolerance of greater pain, and some yasconder, it doesn't matter which, remembers that female hormonal bodies are simply better at dealing with pain than male hormonal ones, thinks, at least that'll be easier. But it hurts so much. What is happening to her? Them. Her. Flicker shuffle. Memory scraps, like drifting debris in zero-G, caught in some sun glint and illuminated to the point of visual pain. Sun glare, through the window falling on the back of his hand. There are too many lines there, the veins prominent. He'd never thought he'd get old on Takes Kalan. But here he is, writing in cipher on paper in his apartment informing Dodge Tarats that it is unsafe to send further imigo copies of himself by any channel, and he will not be returning to LaSalle again to leave his imigo machine in safekeeping and have a new blank installed to continue recording. It isn't true. What's not safe is letting anyone from LaSalle know what he's prepared to do in order to keep them all safe. He feels not just old, but ancient, a decaying conglomeration of choices made in extremis, in extremis, and out of passion, a 
terrifying combination. But extremists and devotion would be worse, and might be truer. In extremis, we must ensure that the emperor's wishes for his successor are respected, says Aethlup. And therefore I propose I adopt the 90% clone as my legal heir. Iskander stares at her, thinks, nothing I will do to this child is as bad as what his own people have planned for him. They will control every aspect of his life. They made him. They choose for him. Is giving him to the emperor to dwell inside so much worse? Then he thinks, yes, it is. And I'm doing it anyway. The emperor's sixth direction is resplendent on his sun-spear throne, a casual intensity on every plane of his face, and Yaskandra's stomach flips over in giddy anticipation, a wave of electric feeling that lodges in the base of his throat. He wants to talk to me. I've shared enough interesting maybe secrets this is going to work. I know what I could offer, what he won't say no to. His last bite of stuffed flour lodges in the base of his throat. He cannot breathe or swallow. The place where Ten Pearl had stabbed his wrist is a bright spike of heat. Ten Pearl looks at him critically from across the table and sighs. A faint melancholy sound, resigned. I did try to come up with a better way to keep you out of our emperor's mind, he says. And so did 19 ads, do forgive her, if your religion grants you the sort of afterlife that involves forgiveness. The flutter of memories coalesces, collapses. Mahit follows it down, down into the center of the three of them. There is a flicker of resistance. No one should know, I can't, it's, you're dead, thinks Mahit. I'm dead thinks the other Yaskander, the young one, before. Was the emperor in bed with you when he asked you to make him immortal? Nineteen ads sprawled across Yaskander's naked chest, props her chin on her hands and looks up at him with deadly seriousness. She's slick, all over with fine sweat. Yaskander should stop finding her erotic at any point now, considering what she's just asked him but it doesn't seem to make a bit of difference. He wishes he was surprised at himself. He trails his fingers through her hair, gets them tangled in the dark, silky strands of it. The emperor's hair is like this, but silver gray. The texture is the same. The other Yaskander is a flicker, mostly libido, purient interest that Mahit feels as a pulse low in her groin, an acknowledgement of desire. It almost shields her from an explosive realization. The answer to 19 Ads's question is yes. You got her to notice you, says Yaskander to Yaskander. I was ten years older than you that night, and she started taking me seriously about two months before it, says Yaskander. Shut up and let me remember this. This was... enjoyable? No, says the Yaskander whose memory they're in. No, this was important. Mahit is flooded with the memory of 19 ads in the bathroom in her office complex, 
the strange tenderness of her hands on Mahit's hands, the brisk, sudden care of her. She tries to recall if the want had been her own, or Yaskander's, or both of theirs. Says to the both of them, watching this memory, Blood and starlight, what made you think this was a good idea? She makes the echo vicious. Viciousness does not cover the revelation that she is not at all surprised that Yaskander had seduced, been seduced by, either 19 ads or the emperor himself. Both of them. In that remembered bed, Yaskander averts his eyes from the calm and even gaze of 19 ads and says, It's not immortality, if that's what you're asking. The body dies, and that really does matter. Most of personality is endocrine. 19 adds considers this. Her nakedness seems to make no difference to the cool evaluation in her face. It is the same expression she'd worn before she'd taken him to bed. So you match for endocrine compatibility? We match for personality. There are a lot of different endocrine systems that can produce very different people, and it's whether the personalities can integrate that matters. But it's easier when there's a degree of physical similarity or similarity in early life experience. His brilliance wants to have a clone made. Iskander shudders at the idea and tries not to let 19 ads see him do it. Iskander shudders. Iskander Mahit shudders. Some taboo seems to be indelible, no matter how many takes Kalan Lietzlam one is seduced by or how long a person marinates in the culture of the palace. One doesn't put an imago into the clone of the predecessor. There's too much congruence. The personalities don't integrate. One of them wins instead, and whatever the other self had to offer is lost. We don't use clones for imago hosts, 19 adds. I don't have any idea how a clone body will change what happens to the expression of six direction as an imago. She clicks her tongue against her upper teeth. She is plastered against him. She can feel his revulsion just fine, he suspects. If I think about it as reuse of his brilliance, it disturbs me less. But it still disturbs me, she says. Yaskander says, I'd be surprised if it didn't. It disturbs me, and I suggested that he use an imago machine in the first place. Then why did you suggest it? Yaskander sighs and shifts them over in the pillows. When he lies on his side, 19 adds fits in the hollow cup made by his hip and chest, a small, bony presence, indelible. Because takes Kalan is an enormous, hungry thing, and his brilliance sixth direction is neither crazy, nor power-hungry, nor cruel. There aren't all that many good emperors, 19 adds, even in poetry. And you love him, she says. Iskander thinks of waking up, wrung out and pleasantly aching, an hour or so after he'd fallen asleep in the emperor's bed, and finding him awake, a stack of infofiche on his bare knees, working. He'd curled around him then, made a warm curve of himself as a brace to work from. It was such a small thing, and Six Direction had left one hand cupped to Yaskander's cheek, lingering. He'd wondered, then, if he ever slept, and heard an echo like a cloud hook in his mind, 
a verse from 14 scalpels, encomia for the fallen of the flagship 12 expanding lotus. The verse describing the captain of that ship, how she had died with her people. There is no star chart unwatched by her sleepless eyes or unguided by her spear-calloused hand. And thus she falls, a captain in truth. Sleepless emperors, seduction's a matter of poetry, of a story he wants to be true. And I love him, Iskander says to 19 ads. I shouldn't, but I do. So do I, she says. I hope I still will, when he's not himself any longer. Are we ourselves? One of them is asking. One of them thinks this is a rhetorical question. There's continuity of memory, and that makes a self. A self is whoever remembers being that self. One of them corrects. Continuity of memory filtered through endocrine response. One of them corrects. We all remember being that self, and we are not the same. They see each other, that peculiar internal triple vision. Mahit does not remember seeing Yaskander the first time she did this. Yaskander, her imago, her other self, a tatter fading now, never quite cohesive. The parts of him that exist now are only the parts which were already written into her neurology. He does not remember it either, and does not know, a miserable confessional spill of not knowing, if he has forgotten, or if he has simply remembered what Mihit remembered, or what Yaskander, the other Yaskander, dead, caught up on the point of his dying like a man impaled, remembered. His last bite of stuffed flour lodges in the base of his throat. He cannot breathe or swallow. Stop it, Mahid says. You were dying, and now you're us. She is still reeling from his other memories, from knowing the depth of his mutual seduction with Takes Kalan. But she has enough sense of herself, still, it is her body they are part of, to not want to feel again the strangling poison administered by Ten Pearl. You were dead, and now you're not, and I need you, she says. I need your help, Yaskander. I am your successor, and I need you now. Her Yaskander, a torn rag. I'm sorry. The old man, dying in love, a gasp, an attempt to breathe, to control the lungs he lives in now. On that steel table, grit-teethed and straining into a convulsed, tonic-clonic arch, Mahit, or Yaskander, or Yaskander, came to horrified consciousness for a second time since five portico had begun the surgery. The terrible sensation of her nervous system being open to the air was gone. Tiny mercy. At least there were no more instruments inside her skull. At least if she was going to have convulsions, she was going to fry her brain with anomalous electrical activity, not tear it up with blunt force trauma. Her lungs seized. Iskander breathed differently than she did, was used to larger lungs, or lungs that were currently frozen in neurotoxic paralysis. Most of her vision went to sparkles, blue and white, encroaching fizzing gray at the edges of her visual field. And she tried not to panic, tried to remember how to get this endocrine system to breathe, to calm down, to stop. Yaskander, 
I need you. We have work. You don't get to be finished. The hand which had been burnt by the poison flower slammed into the steel table. And for a dizzy moment, she couldn't tell if the pain was her own or the memory of Yaskander dying with a needle stabbed into his hand, radiating poison heat. She felt that same electric rush down her ulnar nerves, which had been signaling the malfunctioning of the imago Yaskander she'd shared her mind with. What if all this pain was useless? What if it wasn't the imago machine that had been sabotaged, but Mahit herself? The malfunction was in her nerves. What if she'd had five portico break her open for nothing? Mahit, said Yaskander. The internal voice was peculiar, twinned, patchy, but there. Her spine was a horrible arch that she couldn't release. We're not dying unless you make us die, she told that voice and tried to believe it. There was a stinging needle stick, this time in the flesh of her buttock. Five portico, Mahit thought. That's five portico, trying to fix me. Flat darkness swallowed her up like a thunderclap. It was a reprieve. Interlude. A mind is a sort of star chart in reverse, an assembly of memory, conditioned response, and past action, held together in a network of electricity and endocrine signaling, rendered down to a single moving point of consciousness. Two minds, together, each contain a vast map of past and present, a vaster projected map of futures, and two minds, together, however close, however entwined, have their own cartography, alien to one another. Look now at Daj Tarats and Dekakel Onchu, erstwhile friends, longtime colleagues, deeply suspicious of one another's motives. Here they are, meeting together in the quiet private space of Onchu's personal sleeping pod. Their knees, folded up, almost touch. The soundproofing is on. Look carefully at the points at which their universal cartographies do not correspond. Anshu has brought to Rotz her reports on the great three-wheeled ships that are moving through stationer space and eating stationer ships and stationer pilots. She has brought as well the frisson of gravity-skewed fear that her imago line has instilled in her as a response to the incomprehensible. It costs her some of her pride to admit these things to Tarats, but the miners and the pilots are allies of old. The two points of Lascelles' government, which send men and women out into the black outside the station's metal shell. She does not expect what Tarats brings her in reply, that he is known about these incursions, by rumor and hint and suppressed report, for the better part of two decades, has known and kept a secret map, and a network of spies and informants to supply that map's points of data. The cargo captain who had come to Anshu made a stop at Daj Tarats's office afterward. Anshu is angry at him for that, but it is not a useful anger, nor one she can spend time on harboring, since Tarats goes on, a spill of confession like a weight released after long hours bearing it up. Amongst the constellation of his plans for Yaskandara Gavan, Gonda takes Kalan so many years ago to serve there, was to prepare for an alliance wherein the One Empire, 
as human as the stationers, but more hungry, might be cajoled into throwing itself open-jawed into the maw of an empire vaster and more strange when the time came. That such an empire might be devoured there, just as it has devoured so much and for so long. You are using us as bait, says Dekakel Onchu. A clash between Texcalan and these aliens will happen right on top of us. Not bait, Dodge Tarot's replies. I am making us something worth preserving in our current form to a polity which has constantly threatened to absorb us. The clash will not happen here. Texcalan's fleet will go through our Anhamamet gate and through all the rest of the jump gates where these ships have been showing up, and out into wherever the aliens are coming from. Anshu imagines Tarazza's mind. He must think of Texcalan as a tide, a sort of thing that could wash through and pull back again, and leave the ocean the same. She's seen an ocean once. She's seen what a high tide does to the shoreline. Tarazza does not think of tides. He thinks of weights of pressing his thumb down as hard as he can on the scale of the galaxy, making a little indentation, a tiny shift. The sort of tiny shift that might happen if a man were to go to Texcalan and love it with all his heart and mind and seduce it as much as he himself has been seduced and thus guide it to its death. What do you want from this? Anju asks in the quiet of her pod. An end, says Daj Tarots, who has grown quite old while pressing his fingers down onto the scale. An end to empires, an immovable object to crash an impossible force upon, and break it. Anchu hisses through her teeth. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow Stories from Among the Stars on your preferred podcast app to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of A Memory Called Empire wherever books or audiobooks are sold. We hope you're enjoying this season. Please tell us what you think by filling out a quick survey with your feedback. Just go to bit.ly slash surveys from among the stars. That's bit.ly slash surveys from among the stars. Thank you.